Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and if you were not able to get the notes, uh, this is the time to go get them on the back table there. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. So Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26 is uh, the, excuse me, the notes that you need for this morning. And it's been two weeks since we covered uh, some of the material, so we kind of need to go and uh, <clears throat> go back and recover what's going on. Uh, one has said that it sounds like uh, Solomon maybe have pull, had pulled an all-nighter at school or commuted his job every day in heavy tra- traffic. Uh, that's how you almost feel like when you read some of the book of Ecclesiastes. But you have to remember with Ecclesiastes what uh, the author, Solomon, is trying to do. He's trying to point out or try and figure out the question whether or not there is truly uh, an answer to life's question. Uh, Whether or not there is uh, anything that is worthwhile uh, under heaven. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it just simply says, I gave my heart to search out wisdom concerning all things that are done under the sun. And then this is the statement that he came up with. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. He's looking for perhaps some meaning in life, and we might put it that way in the sense that he's looking for meaning in life, and he doesn't really find it. And so he goes about as the the wealthiest and richest individual in the world with the most wisdom and and goes about as his own search attempting to find out if there's any meaning to life under the sun. And what do we mean by that term by under the sun is all the events and activities that happen in human life uh, in this life, not concerned about the life to come, not concerned about heaven, but if I was just to focus in right here and that's it, could I find meaning to life. So what Solomon does is he goes about and does all sorts of things. You find out in uh, the start of chapter 2 that uh, he decides that he's going to uh, search things out by wisdom, and then he's going to search things out by pleasure. Uh, wisdom in the sense of all these building projects that he does, and he is uh, creating certain things and, and doing well, what we would say, great uh, things for mankind, and really doesn't find uh, meaning in life in just doing that. So he decides to give himself to pleasure, and we kind of went through last week that uh, he samples pretty much all the pleasure of this life uh, from comedy to to drink to uh, the shopping and acquiring of things and and uh, even dating we we put it down that way but uh, the desire for relationships and these type of things uh, he decides uh, to be kind of what we would say a, a hedonist a person who's just out for pleasure and he tries to find meaning in life in that and we stopped in verse 11 last week, and he just comes to this conclusion that I looked on all the works and my hands had rotten on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there's no profit under the sun. You just kind of go, that's a rather uh, pessimistic view of life. But he does come to this attempt where he attempts to find meaning in life by wisdom and by folly. 
And both of those bring vexation of spirit. Your, your soul is just not enjoying and not happy and dissatisfied. That's what happens. So Solomon kind of continues on this argument. And it's more along the lines that perhaps uh, as you look at it, that he is looking at work, doing things, setting up for yourself projects. And we're not just talking merely about work that you work for some boss and they tell you what to do or you may have your own business and the customer tells you what to do or you're at home, you've got work that is required there and it's important work because it's required for the functioning of life. You have to have certain things done uh, in the home. But he begins to focus in on that and begins to say, is work itself... You know, the accomplishing of things, will that bring satisfaction? Getting things done. And you think about work, work is not necessarily something that uh, people are delighted in doing. We do forget that work wasn't originally something that was bad. You can read Genesis chapter 2, and here you've got Adam and Eve who are put in this Garden of Eden to tend it. And I've thought about that. We've got enough garden space that the previous owners left uh, and flowers in our yard that we are quite busy trying to, at times, pull weeds and those type of things. And it's not uh, necessarily a delight at times. It's just a frustration because you pull weeds and you come back and there's ones that are taller a week later. And you're like, where did these come from? Can you imagine tending a garden and the work is just simply take care of it and there's no weeds and no thistles and anything like that? And mankind was to, to maintain the Garden of Eden. That was what they were supposed to do. Be responsible for the animals, take care of the plants, and that's what you're supposed to do, and there's no sin there. Work was something that God gave mankind before there was ever sin. Now understand what happens. Well, Genesis 3, mankind decides God's plan's really not all that good. We've got better ideas, and so they eat of the tree that God said don't eat of that fruit. And so part of the curse is this, is that mankind in the sweat of his brow and battling thorns and thistles is going to work day in and day out throughout his life until he dies. And so work, which was actually designed by God to give us a sense of purpose and accomplishing things, becomes the very thing that many of us curse and hate and dislike. It frustrates us that, that if it wasn't for work, we might be able to enjoy life, but work's a necessity of life. But there's frustration at times that things that you do in life as far as work projects and things like this don't really seem to amount to much when you get to the end of life. There's a man by the name of Leonard Wolf. He was a co-founder of uh, the Bloomsbury Group, which was a political think tank uh, and a group for that along with a, a publishing group for different books and the like. He said about uh, this about his life's work as he looked back on his life, just simply said this, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have 
in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. His statement was that he made that statement. You go, well, he probably didn't do a whole lot. No, he was a man who wrote 20 books on literature, politics, and economics. But in the end, to him, it just seemed like a complete waste of time and frustration that nothing was accomplished. And this is what Solomon's going to come into, and he's going to say, well, is work satisfying? As you have as the title of the lesson, uh, it's this, that we've got to go take our nose to the grindstone. You know, I'm going to go back to work again, and it's just going to be the daily grind, and, and we're going to do this again. And, and that's how people view work. Is Solomon going to have some other perception when it comes to work under the sun? And I think you probably know what the answer is going to be on this, but let's go ahead and read what he says. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 12. He says this, And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? He's the one that's the king, and he's responsible for certain things. Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. And the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceive that also one event happened to them all. And I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then there more wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. I'm going to stop here. You have in your notes here that uh, Solomon makes this initial observation. He looks at wisdom, he looks at folly, okay? I I did everything by wisdom, I did all the pleasures in life, uh, and he begins to say, well, what was more advantageous? And he comes to this conclusion that wisdom is better than folly in this life. It's better to go through life and uh, do things that are wise, you think, well, why is wisdom better? I, I can think just of two, is that wisdom actually pleases God because God desires for us to be wise. Uh, and we might say this, is that it helps us negotiate life successfully. If we've got skill in living, uh, we're going to negotiate life a little more skillfully than a person who's unthinking and uncaring might be able to go through life. But in his observation, he just kind of goes, okay, well, wisdom's better. Because a person who's wise is looking ahead and seeing certain things, whereas a person who's foolish is just looking at the here and now, not seeing very far ahead, like a person that's walking in darkness. They aren't seeing anything. So wisdom and living by wisdom is a better way to live life. And so that's his initial observation. If I had to choose folly or wisdom, I'd live a life of wisdom over just pure pleasure. There seems to be more advantages in life, and it seems like it could be better lived. But then he begins to look at his life, and we we started reading this section, is that there is a frustration, and I have it put this way, there's a frustration of working on great projects. You might just say projects, but, you know, great projects. I was thinking about this, are there not projects around your house that you say you always get to? 
You know, I look at my parents, and there's projects that they have that I'm guessing I'm going to inherit. <laughs> and, uh, and if people were to look at my life, there are some projects in my house that are undone, and you just kind of wonder, in my lifetime, are they going to get done? There are things in the yard and things in the house and, and perhaps things that you have as a hobby that, you know, that project's been sitting there for a generation. You know, children's have, children have come and children have gone and it's still there and it needs to be done. And you have projects like this in all realms of life. Business projects. You know, you have certain things that your company's trying to accomplish and things that you would love to, to get done and you're working on this day in and day out or uh, laying it aside but knowing that has to be done and, and you've got this pressure of getting things done. And so when it comes to projects like that, whether they be hobbies, responsibilities, or those type of things, there's this whole kind of anthill type of mentality where I'm going to try and get things done but there's this frustration, and it's the one frustration, there's actually two, and we'll read about the second one here in a second. You can work on great projects and try and accomplish great things, whether it be impacting humankind or doing things in politics or building structures or doing things that help other people, but here's the one frustration that Solomon saw, and it's this. Everyone is equal in the end. And you may not have caught this because the word does not come up in the section there, but we would just simply put it this way, death is the great equalizer. And it doesn't matter if you were a fool your whole life, lived your life for pleasure and all of those type of things, or you're an individual who went out to help mankind. you're going to end up dead. And it doesn't matter how great you were in this life or how small you are, you're all going to end up in the end not finishing the projects you want because you're finished. Death is the great equalizer. I was thinking about this, uh, and I can't remember exactly what year it was, but we took a senior trip. And in that senior trip, uh, we typically went to Washington, D.C., and one of the things we went to is to see Arlington Cemetery. And we would oftentimes go see the changing of the guard and all of that that goes along with that, the kind of pomp the, that uh, goes on with that ceremony. But this year, my brother-in-law had made a request because my brother-in-law had been over in Iraq. He had, had done two, two tours in Iraq, 101st Airborne. And he said, I want you to go find a grave. And uh, he said, uh, there's a, a lady that's buried there that was a person that was on our staff uh, when I was over in Iraq that was killed by an IED. I want a picture of her grave. And so I can't remember the area. I think it was the area of 61 or 62 in the Arlington Cemetery where they were having new burials and they had people being buried there from Iraq as that was going on and, and others uh, that just died uh, you know, of old age, some of these individuals. And they're burying people in this new section in Arlington. And so we wandered because there was no way to get there other than just walking. And so we wandered and wandered and wandered and finally found the section where they're burying new individuals and finally found uh, this young lady who was, a, if I remember correctly, a staff sergeant. 
that had been killed there and took a picture of it. And I looked at the person that was buried next to her. Here she is, a staff sergeant, okay? You know, that's better than a private, but, you know, a staff sergeant is a, is a, a non, uh, non-com officer, a non-commissioned officer, not way up in the hierarchy. And she was buried right next to a general who had lived a long life in comparison to what her life had been. But here they were buried next to each other, a staff sergeant and a general. You think about Arlington Cemetery, there's a lot of things there that are just complete ironies because you have people that are buried there that are Supreme Court justices and presidents, ambassadors, and they're all buried next to each other and by their gravestones for the most part you're just like, they're all the same. They all died in the end. Death is the great equalizer because it doesn't matter what you're doing in this life, death is going to stop it. And it doesn't matter if you were a fool or a wise person, death is still going to, well, make you all the same in the end. And so that was, for Solomon, a frustration. Here he is putting in all his effort and you have somebody else who does nothing and death is going to end it for him. And so for him... That frustrated him. But the thing that frustrated him even more was not that he was going to die, it was this. That your project will be taken over by somebody else. Just look at verse 18. This is that section there. But this statement is made. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun. You spent your whole life working on this, but you hate it. Why? Well, here's why. Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet he shall have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all my labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion, his inheritance, This also is vanity and great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief, yet his heart taketh not rest in the night. This also is vanity. He's basically saying, I get no sleep at night working on projects. I I can't even get sleep because I'm trying to take care of projects. And what you have here is that he simply says your project will be taken over by somebody else and the understanding of these two points here is that they will not view the project the same as you do. And uh, more than likely, they will be a fool, maybe in your estimation. (laughs) They're foolish because they don't understand the value of what I've given to them. But just think about this. And I think about this as a son. As I said, eventually I'm going to have to take care of my parents' stuff and all of these type of things. You know, I'm not going to view all the stuff my dad's collected 
which some of you have been in the house there, you know what I'm talking about. He's got a lot of stuff about aviation and those type of things, which I like aviation. But I'm, I'm not going to find the same fondness that my dad finds in it. In fact, a uh, famous story in the family, and it's already been discussed uh, once or twice, my dad's got thousands of magazines and books on aviation. And um, there was a statement made early on in our marriage that what are we going to do with all this stuff if you pass away? And they'd had these conversations because my dad had prostate cancer and some other things and is a survivor of that. But uh, several occasions where you have a discussion about uh, giving things away and inheritance and those type of things. And, And dad said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with these books. I guess I'm going to go ahead and give them to Keith. (laughs) And my mom said, if you want to remain having a daughter-in-law, you will not do that. You know, and I think now we've kind of uh, gotten to the point where we'll donate it to some university and they'll try and figure out what to do with it and whatever because he's got some books that are rare and that type of thing. But the fact is, is, I I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But these are things my dad takes a lot of time on. And uh, they have served their purpose. And they have worked uh, for different individuals in life as far as some of the research that he's done and that type of thing. But what am I going to do with that? You know, I like building model airplanes. Okay? They're not really model airplanes, tanks, more along those lines, and little figurines. I, I, I like that. I listen to sermons. It gives me something to do while I sit and listen to sermons if I've got spare time to do that. Uh, my dad, if you go into his office, he's got some very elaborately done models. Uh, some of them very small. He's got an airplane that he made that's about that big, and it's all out of paper. You know, these type of things. my guess is I'll probably inherit some of those. But what you don't know is my dad's probably got about 100 boxes of models that he's not built. These are projects he's always looking to get forward to and and get to, and we kind of understand probably not going to. But what am I going to do with those 200 boxes of airplanes unbuilt? I'm going to be selling them off probably. You know, you, you, you think through the things that you have in your life that you spend so much time on and so much effort on, and these are the things that you give your life to. If you really think about it, when you're gone, people are going to go, I'm going to do with this. I'm not going to finish that. And if they do finish it, they're probably not going to finish it in the style that you wanted it finished. You think of house projects and these type of things that you were working on and you give your, you know, in the sense that your kids come in and they inherit the house and you were working on certain things to design your house a certain way. You're going to come in, they're going to paint the house a different color, pull up all the carpeting and do different things and you're going to go, but that's not how we wanted our house. That's not what we were designing it like and now we're gone and somebody else is doing it. And so you might feel in one sense like Solomon does, these people are fools. Don't they understand what they have? 
But that is a frustration of life where you're going, okay, I'm going to work on projects and I'm eventually going to die. And I hope someone carries these things on, but I look at life in general and I realize it doesn't work out that way typically. So why am I trying to accomplish these great things? I mean, I think about this when you look at political leaders. You have these leaders who do all sorts of things and they finally achieve their goal of convincing people of their position and two years later they vote them out. Unthankful people. I mean, I think of this as uh, far as the life of Winston Churchill. If you ever read uh, the life of Winston Churchill, it was a life of frustration politically until he became the prime minister during World War II. But do you realize that in the midst of World War II in 1945, that the people of Britain voted him out of office? Now, he did come back a few years later and that, but the fact is, is here you've done all this stuff, you've done the great uh, crusade, and you've freed uh, Europe from tyranny, and people are like, well, you know, thanks, no thanks, you know, great idea, but we're going to vote for the other party who's got other ideas and whatever, and, and but it's like this throughout life. And so, I mean, we're giving illustration upon illustration like this, but you do understand the fact is, is it doesn't matter what you do in this life, we're all going to be equal in the end. And no matter what project you work on, you're going to hand it off to somebody else because you're going to die, and they're probably not going to do it the same way, and they're not going to see the value of what you've done. And so you're just kind of going, well, why do I work so hard here in this life if I'm handing stuff off that people really don't care about? And so you just kind of go, well, that, that's kind of a, you know, really? Solomon, come on. But, but what Solomon's doing is he's saying, if you look at life under the sun, if there's nothing else, okay, there's no heaven, there's no God, there's nothing with that, this is what you're going to struggle with. You're going to be like this Leonard Wolf guy that we mentioned at the beginning that's going to say, I wrote all these books and spent 200,000 hours working and I feel like I've done absolutely nothing. Almost sounds like he's suicidal about the fact of what he didn't accomplish. <clears throat> and you say, well, is there any hope? And, and Solomon begins to throw in these passages throughout Ecclesiastes. He finally comes to the conclusion you want at the very end. But you have the first of what some have called uh, the seize the day passages. Carpe diem. The seize the day passages. And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, it's just simply this. Verse 24 there is nothing better. So he's saying, Here's, here is the best thing you probably could do in life. Okay? There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten thereunto more than I for God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he giveth travail to gather up and to heap up that which he may give to him that is good before God this also is vanity and vexation of spirit now before we go any further I, I do have to mention this and I've said it before note this is not an Epicurean statement that ignores God 
okay? Because the Epicurean believes this, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. So let's just live for gusto right now because we're going to die. And you're going, that's not really a great philosophy either. And you say, why is it not an Epicurean philosophy or statement? A, because Epicurus wasn't around at this point yet. But B, Solomon's making the statement and he's relating it to God. Okay, this is where things change. I, I don't know if you notice this as you perhaps have read through Ecclesiastes before and especially this section. When was the last time God was mentioned? Can anybody figure out before this section, verse 24 through 26, when was the last time God was even talked about? Just kind of look back. Not chapter 2. Where's the last time you see it? God mentioned. 113. See, in all of this searching for wisdom and knowledge of pleasure and wisdom and all of those things, Solomon once hasn't mentioned God. Hasn't done these things in relation to God because he's trying to figure out if life will have meaning without God. And all of a sudden he says, okay, now what I'm going to say is this, eat, drink, and be merry because this is what God has given to you. This is a gift of God. We would put it this way. You're enjoying life as a garden of Eden. I mean, think about what God did in the garden of Eden. He gave them food to eat. The things were well watered, and he gave them work. And that's, you go, that's what simply life was at one time. Enjoying working, being in the creation that God has made, enjoying the food that he has given, enjoying the drink that he's given, and that was life. This is what he's proclaiming, that you ought to live life as this is something that God has given to us to richly enjoy. It's something that we ought to delight in and be excited about and uh, rejoice in as far as what God has given to us uh, time and time again that he's given us things to enjoy. I want us to, well, we'll turn to a passage here in a second. But what, what you ought to do with life, and I think we already understand this, and we have New Testament statements on this, one of them is just simply this. Everything you should have and do should reflect glory back to God. God, thank you for allowing me to enjoy this food today. I didn't have this food yesterday. I was able to go out and purchase it. I'm thankful for this. It's, you know, you've given it to me. I'm enjoying it. Thank you for my, what, daily bread. Lord, I'm able to drink uh, through, uh, drink this uh, drink here. You know, I can actually drink it through a straw. There's some occasions in life where you can't even drink anything. But you know, today, Lord, I can drink this, and I'm thankful for the simple provision of this. And Lord, uh, you've given me the energy today to be able to do what I needed to do and, and be involved in the different things today. And you're a God who's in control of everything, and so you well, allowed me to do this today. This is something that you've given to me. I delight in this. Thank you, Lord. 
I mean, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, whether therefore ye eat or drink, and then there's that statement at the end that kind of fits in with your work, or whatsoever ye do, do all the glory of God. There's a reflection back that understanding that I'm not just living my life in a vacuum. No, I'm living life and the things that I have, God's been involved in that. God's had a part in that. The job that I have, the place that I live, the food that I have, God's had a part in that. And there's a reason he's got me there. And for for me, it's to find the purpose why I'm there. And to enjoy it, to thank the Lord for what we have as far as provision. I want you to turn to another passage of Scripture. I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy has a lot to say about, uh, if you've read through it, uh, you realize it has a lot to say about people who are poor and people who are rich, how people ought to respond to their poorness. Simply this, for the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not saying that money's evil. It's that I set my affection on, if I had more money, it'd be great, and I set my whole affection on that. And then at the rich at the end, it talks about, it's not saying you give away your riches or you have to become poor. It's just simply saying, uh, be not high-minded. And so you have those type of statements throughout uh, 1 Timothy, uh, but you have in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, There are people that were forbidding certain things in the church uh, that Timothy was working in and saying, you shouldn't be doing this and shouldn't be doing this and all of these things that, that well, the Scripture didn't forbid. And verse number four, it says this, for every creature of God is good. Because they were saying there were certain food, meats that you shouldn't eat from and uh, eat of and these type of things. But verse 3 says that you ought to receive these things with thanksgiving of them that believe and know the truth. But every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused, and if it be received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. I mean, it's just simply saying this, the things that you've been given, the good things that God has given to you, you need to reflect back thanksgiving and go, okay, there's a God who is involved in this. This, is, this is, wasn't an accident that this happened or uh, misfortunate circumstances that brought me to this point or these type of things. No, you're going, okay, God's had a part in this. What's, what's the, the role of this thing in my life? What is God trying to do? What is God trying to display? Thank you, Lord, for what you have given to me and you have provided for me. That ought to be the attitude of a Christian. Now, that's not to say that everything is going to go well. We'll talk about that in Romans chapter 8 in the, the morning service. Because you have to have passages that all things work together for good because there are times where you're going through bad times and suffering and you kind of go, is there any good in this? We'll talk about that side uh, here. But in general, we ought to just kind of go, okay, this is God-given food, activity, these type of things. What am I going to do with this? And so ultimately the last note is this, that the person who lives life without God will find only frustration. That's how you end that passage in Proverbs because it says here you got a person who's doing things with the things that God has in wisdom and the person who's foolish eventually is going to work really hard, be frustrated, and give his stuff away to somebody else. That's how they're going to view life. I work really, really hard, do lots of things, 
and then I'm going to have to give everything away. They're frustrated by it. Whereas a person who lives daily thanking God, the provision he's given, the good things he's had, the good things they've been uh, displayed or showered with by God, and they're thanking him for it, will live a life even though day in and day out you seem to be working the same kind of job and same type of things are happening. There's a difference because you realize there's a God who's in order and in control is in charge of those things. And so it's not so frustrating that you have to go, oh, back to the daily grindstone. I got to work again and that type of thing. No, you view each day as a gift from God. Have another day. I'm able to be upright and be able to do things. And that, I'm praise the Lord for that. Let's find out what this day holds. How is this going to be different from yesterday? And what's the Lord going to bless me with? And what do I get to thank him for? You begin to look at life like that and you're not going to be the frustrated individual that you find Solomon-like who's trying to function without God. So enjoy life. Eat, drink, the work that you do because that's what God expects from you and reflect glory back to him in thankfulness because he has given you those things. Lord, we thank you that we are not working here with no purpose, going in circles seemingly, and, and then being frustrated by the fact that we won't accomplish everything that we need to. You'll give us as much time as we need to to get things done, and then you will take us to glory. And so if you do take us uh, seemingly in our mind before our time, that's fine, because you know our times, and we'll look at that next week, our times, and there are certain times for certain things. But may we rejoice in what you give to us on a daily basis. Thank you for it and glorify you for the good things and the greatness of your character that we see day in and day out. That will give us purpose in life beyond just living for the here and now. The Lord, we love you. We thank you for your great gift to us in Christ that gives us eternal hope. If anything, that's what we can rejoice in. And in his name we pray, amen.